Let's pray as we come to uh, think about this part of God's Word together. Father, as we uh, remember again your faithfulness to us, we thank you that you are a speaking God who reveals himself to us in his Word. So, Lord, we ask that uh, during these few moments together that you would speak to us again and guide us and encourage us and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, around about a year ago now, uh, on the 28th of April, 2022, to be exact, uh, Luke chapter 17 was one of my daily readings, and I made a little note on my phone that day, which simply says, leaving speech, Luke 17. Now, you'll be glad to hear that this isn't a, a speech in any way, um, and I'll tell you why I made that note in a little while. But let's first have a look at this uh, chapter together and think about what's going on, because we're jumping into Luke's gospel. Um, it was our anniversary service last week, and before that we were in John 3 and 4. So we're coming into this with little context. But these verses in Luke chapter 17 come in a collection of stories and teachings of Jesus towards the end of his earthly ministry most of which are only recorded by Luke. In fact, between chapter 10 and chapter 18, there are 14 parables which only Luke records, including this one about the master and his servant who does his duty. And we know it's close to the end of Jesus' ministry. In the next chapter, he predicts his death, and then after that, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on Luke 19. So Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's about to leave them. He's about to go to the cross. Now, don't get the wrong idea. I didn't pick this passage because my leaving is in any way like Jesus leaving. Um, wretched man that I am. I hope I'm not that big-headed. But I have chosen it because I think that you as a congregation, just like the disciples, uh, are looking to the future just now with a degree of uncertainty. You've been declared vacant this morning. You wonder what the future holds. So I want us to allow the words of um, Jesus to speak into this situation this morning. It's not why I chose Luke 17 a year ago. I had no idea what my last service would be. I had no idea that this congregation would be vacant. But I've decided to stick with it because I think Jesus speaks into our situation today. The first thing Jesus does is to warn his disciples about sin. Look with me at, at verses 1 to 3 again. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin or to stumble are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. Now, I'm sure it wouldn't have been a great surprise to the disciples to hear that sin is going to be around this side of eternity. Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. Okay, the disciples would be okay with that. But then Jesus ramps it up a notch. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. It's a fairly uh, dramatic picture. Now, at this point, maybe some of the disciples are, are thinking, yes, Jesus, oh, it's terrible that all those people are out there causing others to sin. But maybe one or two of the disciples, you know, the cogs start turning in their mind and they begin to think to themselves, well, hold on a minute. Have I ever caused anybody to sin? I probably have. And then Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he's speaking to them. Verse 3, so watch yourselves. So watch yourselves. Jesus is going to be leaving, and he's warning them about sin. But more than that, he's warning them to watch themselves, to be careful not to lead others into sin. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I think that Jesus is setting the bar pretty high there. I'm not sure I can live up to that. Have I ever caused anybody to sin? Well, yes, I'm sure I have. Have I ever been a bit short with my children at the end of a long day, causing them to lash out, maybe sin against me? I'm sure I've done that. Have I ever nipped it in front of somebody in the car into a space that wasn't really there, but you know, just put the hazards on and hope for the best, cause them to sin? I can see them in the mirror shouting at me, not needing a degree in lip reading to wake out some of the words. <laughs> have I ever done that? Never. Yes, I might have done it once or twice. Other people have done it to me too, but I'm sure I've caused others to sin and probably in ways much worse than those examples. So what Jesus says is serious. But then he goes on, he talks about forgiveness. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment seven times in a day. Imagine someone came up to you and said, you're no use, slapped you across the face, and you were left there wondering, what did I, what did I do wrong there? And, and then 10 minutes later, they came back to you and said, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Do, do you know what? I've just so much going on. There's a lot of pressure. I, I just snapped. You know, I'm so, so sorry. Could you ever forgive me? You're still rubbing your face thinking, hmm. Well, I don't know what's going on with that person. I don't know what's going on at home. I don't know what pressure they're under at work. Do you know what? It, it wasn't good, but okay. I suppose any of us could snap. I forgive you. But then an hour later, the same episode happened again. And they came back to you and they say, look, I'm so sorry. I've just, I, I haven't quite processed it all. I took out my frustration on you again. I know it was wrong. I, I, I hold my hands up. Could you ever forgive me? You think to yourself, well, I'm not so sure about this. I mean, I'm not sure that they're really repenting or that they're really sorry because I'm not sure that they meant it the first time. So how can I be sure that they mean it this time? But I suppose in church on Sunday, the assistant minister said we were meant to forgive people. So okay, okay, I forgive you. But then a third, you get the idea? Seven times, seven in one day? It's just not on. It's not possible, but it's what Jesus says. No wonder the apostles turn around and say, Lord, increase our faith. We can't do this. You'd have to be a super Christian to live up to that. I wonder who you think of in your mind when you think of the godliest person you've ever met. What you would say and answer that question. You know the sort of person I'm talking about? I know who I think of in my head, and he'd be horrified that I would say that about him, but that's part of his humility, which is part of his godliness. You know the sort of person who, who just loves Jesus and you feel like you're closer to Jesus when you're around them? Maybe if I was like that, I could forgive somebody who sins against me seven times in a day. Lord, increase our faith. But then Jesus says something really quite remarkable. He says, no, you don't need more faith. In fact, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. You don't need lots of faith, just a little. But you do need to be faithful with the faith that you have, even if that faith is little. Faith in God isn't just belief about the Bible. I mean, it is that, but it's more. Faith is something that is done. It's a verb as well as a noun. In the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, we read words that the righteous shall live by his faith. Paul quotes it in Galatians and in Romans. 
but it's a lived faith. Do you see that? The righteous person shall live by his faith. It's something that's done. And so Jesus says, it's not, it's not the amount of faith that's important. It's a great thing to have lots of faith, but it's your faithfulness in the faith that you have that makes all these things possible for you. It's not that you have to be a Christian who's on a, up on a pedestal somewhere, who never sins, who can recite the Bible backwards, who has all the answers, has it all sussed out, and just seems to live in a holier world than the rest of us. I mean, some of those things are, are great things, and I wish I had them. But Jesus says, no, living my way where nothing's impossible, even forgiving the person who really, really hurts you, it's possible. And the way is to live by faith. It's very ordinary. It, it, it doesn't look exceptional. It doesn't get thanks or praise, but it's quiet and faithful. And so he tells the story of this faithful servant from verse 7. Suppose one of you had a servant plying or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. The servant doesn't do anything superhuman. The servant just does his job. And Jesus wants us just to do the simple things, trusting him. And if we do that, we'll be able to live for him. Before I came into ministry, as Peter mentioned, I was a, a chemist, um, but while I was a chemist part-time, I also worked in Tesco um, as something to pay for stuff as I was going through university. And if I dealt with a customer, one of the things that I had to do, there was a list of things. You had to smile, you had to say hello, you had to ask if they had a club card, you had to offer them a bag. I don't think you're meant to do that anymore. We're more ego-conscious than we were in those days. And you had to say thank you at the end. And quite often customers would have said thank you if, if you know you'd help them, but I suppose they didn't really have to. I mean, whether they said thank you or not, it was my job to help them, simple as that. Me thanking them was another thing because they could choose to shop in Tesco and support me um, and my living, or they could go somewhere else. But they didn't really need to thank me. It was maybe a nice or a polite thing to do. It might've been nice for this servant that Jesus talks about to, to be given thanks, but really he was just doing his job. Jesus tells another parable in Matthew 25. It, it's one of his most quoted parables because in it he tells the, the story of servants entrusted with bags of gold and, and the master says to the faithful servants, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And we sometimes recall those words when someone who served the Lord really well or with distinction and when they depart to be with Jesus, we, we kind of think of them going to heaven and being told, hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's appropriate that we think that, but the servants in the story who hear those words were thanked because they were faithful with the little that they had been entrusted with. The full, the full sentence Jesus says to them is this, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The way to do big things in the faith, to, to be able to forgive the sins of somebody who sins against you, hurts you seven times in a day, and, and all of those things, is to be faithful in the little that we have. If you think to yourself, I, I'm not a super Christian, I, I couldn't do things like that. Well, Jesus calls you just to be faithful where you are. 
I suppose at this stage, I, I do want to put in a brief aside, um, because this is why I made that note um, a year ago on my phone. When I read those verses about not really needing thanks, about just doing duty, something uh, resonated with me. I certainly haven't been a superhero Christian um, during my time here. Um, during my final year of college, first year here, a certain pandemic happened, and then 18 months later, I found myself not able to work. I was off for about four months, then facing myself back in and, and frustrated at not maybe being able to do as much as I would like. And besides all that, COVID was still lurking. There were periods of time when we could meet together here, but we couldn't do lots of other stuff. And I do accept that those things were outside of my control, but as I reflect on my time here, it's been a tremendously blessed time. And I'm grateful to God for that. I'm grateful for all of you, for your welcome and your support and encouragement and the blessing that you've been. But between all the circumstances I've just mentioned and my own many uh, shortcomings, I'm not sure I could even be the servant in this story who says I've done my duty. But I thank you for your encouraging words today. But if those kind words are true, even in part, it's been my joy to do those things. I suppose I would describe it as joyful duty. I hope I've been faithful in the little that the Lord has allowed me to do here. Um, as Peter indicated, it's probably not all that we would have liked it to be. But if I've been faithful in the little, then, well, I'll be very happy because the work's his and the glory has to be his. So what about Ravenhill Presbyterian Church? What about you as you face uncertainty? You might be quite unsettled by the time here at Ravenhill, or maybe it's something else in your life right now that you're facing. You're not sure how it's going to go. It's the not knowing that hurts, isn't it? It's not the actual process itself. It's the just kind of not knowing the end goal. Well, to disciples facing the unknown, Jesus says this today. He says, focus on being faithful. You don't need to be a superstar Christian. You don't need to be the sort of person who gets lots of adulation and thanks. You don't need for other people to think highly of you as a Christian. You just need to be faithful in what you have. You have a sphere of influence here in church or at home or in the workplace. It mightn't feel like very much, but it's what you have. So be faithful in it. Things that cause sin are bound to come. They'll come to you. They'll come to those around you. So watch yourselves. Problems will come. Opportunities for quarrels and fallouts will come. They're bound to come. So watch yourselves. Sometimes vacancies in congregations are used by individuals to do things that they'd never do <laughs> if there was a minister around. Flee away from that. Practice scandalous forgiveness. If there's a sin, if there's a problem, deal with it. Because it's our instinct not to do that. It's our instinct with our own sin. Sadly, it's our instinct with sin in the church. We ignore it. We hope it'll just go away. But that just makes the situation worse. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it like this. He said, sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from the life of Jesus and others. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. The more deeply they become entangled in it, the more unholy is their loneliness. Sin wants to remain unknown. Sin and those committed to sin shun the light. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, sin poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen for at least some space of time in even one in the midst of a body of committed Christians. But in confession, 
dealing with sin, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and the closed isolation of heart. Sin must be brought into the light. What is unspoken is said openly and confessed. Now, Bonhoeffer knows it's not easy. He goes on. It's a hard struggle until the sin crosses one's lips in confession, but God breaks down gates of bronze and through bars of iron. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of another Christian or Christian such as themselves, friend to friend before a living God, prompted by the Spirit, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders, giving up all evil, giving the sinner's heart to God and finding the forgiveness of all one's sin in the life of Jesus Christ and his life together with other Christians. Sin that has been spoken and confessed has lost all its power. Being faithful as you face the unknown means doing simple things well. Simple, but not easy. Dealing with sin, forgiving. This is what God calls his church to be faithful in. It might seem insignificant, but it has eternal consequences. It won't get you praise in the here and now, and neither should it. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, thou and always. Thou and thou only, the first in my heart. High King of heaven my treasure thy art. As I leave Ravenhill and as my family leaves Ravenhill, we're so thankful for every one of you. We're thankful for the faithfulness that you've shown us in all kinds of ways, big and small, for caring for us, for encouragements, for support, for warmth, for grace, for forgiveness. Yes, all of those things have happened. You mightn't think that those things were big things, but they are. And Jesus wants you and he wants me to keep being faithful in those because things that cause sin are bound to come. And until Jesus returns, that's the bad news. So he calls us to be faithful. But the good news is that even though you and I won't always get it right, Jesus gives us grace. It's not that he takes those things away or that he transforms us to be kind of super species of Christian, but he's taken the punishment away. It should be better for us to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around our neck we deserve no better. We mess up, and we sin, and we cause others to sin. We worry, we don't trust him. We depend on ourselves, and our faith is so little. He knows that, and he went to the cross anyway. To paraphrase the late Tim Keller, we're so much worse than we imagine we are, and yet we're so much more loved and precious in his sight than we could possibly know that we are. Paul said to the Corinthians, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what frees us to do our duty. That's what allows us to be faithful in the little faith that we have because we realize that in ourselves we can't do it. We can't forgive people. We can't not cause others to sin. Lord, increase our faith, but know we're free to be faithful because he has already lived the perfect, faithful life for us. So we're already there if we're in him. We've become the righteousness of God in Christ. So we're free just to get on with it, to be faithful with a little, to trust his blood for the times we don't get it right, and to look ahead for the future when we as unworthy servants receive our reward when our duty is done. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gift of Jesus, your Son. We give you thanks for his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his saving death, and his life-giving resurrection. Lord, we affirm today that he is the object of our faith, and we ask for your help in living that faith. As a congregation, protect us in the days ahead from the evil one, from the things that cause sin. Help us to be a community of grace where that is dealt with and forgiven as we reflect the forgiveness that you have given to us. And help us to be faithful in living for you, content to be faithful in the things you've given us until the day we see you in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.